Welcome to How Did I Get Here, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the careers of working professionals to learn about their journey so far, career joys and struggles, and advice for people considering the same path as them. My name is Erica Lipton, and this season we are talking to Protestant pastors and asking them the question, how did they get here? Uh, my name is Amy Banka. I'm currently the lead pastor uh, on a five-pastor team at Hopewell United Methodist Church in Downingtown, Pennsylvania. And I've been there for um, in my eighth year and completing my third year as completing my fourth year, I think, <laughs> as uh, the lead pastor. Prior to that, I was the associate pastor. Um, brought in for the purpose of succeeding a long-term um, pastor of 21 years. Okay. So you I'm started not... as the associate with the intention of becoming the lead pastor. Yes. Yes. Arrangement made between the two of us and the uh, district superintendent and bishop at the time. And uh, so a little bit of a, a risky plan. I think, but it was an attempt to ensure the vitality of the church by creating um, a known entity, a known leader to carry the ministry forward. Um, and I also, uh, while I am the sixth appointed female pastor at Hopewell, I'm the first lead pastor. So one of the questions being asked in that transitional um, approach was, can a female pastor lead one of the largest congregations in the conference? So I am the first female pastor to lead a congregation of this size. Well, that's interesting because you're a United Methodist, Hopewell's United Methodist Church, correct? Yes. Um, so women, it's not like women are really new to ministry and pastoral ministry in the Methodist Church. Sure. Uh, the question though becomes, where do they get appointed um, and how large are those churches? So there have been women appointed to churches uh, that were fairly large in size. At the time, this was the largest. Mm. And um, so appointment has, um, well, I, I guess we'll, we'll talk about that. The appointment of female pastors and some of the experiences of female pastors are still very different from that of their male counterparts. So, um, so yeah, so we, uh, we're shattering a glass ceiling and uh, we're, pretty, uh, we're pretty excited about it, but we recognize that even in the enthusiasm and desire to do that, uh, there crop up a lot of questions that we didn't know we had and experiences um, that we didn't know we would have. Mm. Um, so how long have you been in ministry overall? So eight years at Hopewell. You um, a little bit more than 20, um, I guess. So I had every kind of appointment you could have, lay pastor, student pastor, uh, licensed local pastor. So um, sometimes it, it takes me a minute to think about it. I count all that as, uh, <laughs> as ministry. Um, so yeah, sometime in the late 90s, I started. Um, so I would love to know, most people don't like dream of being as a pastor as a kid. So I like to ask people, what did you as a little kid say you wanted to be when you grew up? I always wanted to be a teacher. 
Um, and then as a little kid, I wanted to be a teacher. And then as an older kid and as a, an emerging adult, I wanted to be a college professor. So, um, so not little, I didn't want to teach in elementary or junior high, but I really wanted to teach and teach English. So I was very excited when as a early 20 something, I actually was on staff as an English professor at Drexel University. Um, and so it was my dream job. And I was very grateful for the opportunity, which was a door that was open because of a connection that I had with another faculty member. Um, so it was a really great moment for me. It's from that place of feeling like I had at least initially fulfilled my dream that God called me to ministry. And it was actually a pretty sad experience for me because I felt like I had finally arrived at the doorstep of what I always wanted for myself. And then um, God called me out of that. And since then, I have continued to be a teacher, but uh, in a much different way than I had expected. And in fact, part of what God said to me uh, on my drive home one day from Drexel University was, Amy, you're teaching the wrong thing. Mm. So that's what I wanted to be. It is in part what I still am, but very differently than I had anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that call? Could you go into like what that call was like in a little more detail? So like you were in your so, job that had to take a kick to move. Yes. Yeah. So it wasn't my first call. Um, which is, is probably pretty typical if folks who are watching this are thinking about how they've been called to ministry. Um, I, I've met exactly no one who responds to the first call, right? So I can I've met one. <laughs> one person I've talked to is like, I was nine years old, I wanted to be a pastor. And I was like, okay. bless your heart, because no yeah. one else has said that. Um, so, so this is actually not the first call. I can, if you're interested, I'll tell you that story too. But um, I was in the process of really running away from my call and running towards what I wanted to do and having great success, as I said, getting into places that are really difficult uh, to get into. And, and I was, you know, 25 years old. So to be in that place, it was, um, it was, a, it felt like a real blessing. And on the way home one day, I was driving in my car after a great class session and I think I was listening to Christian radio or something. I was just really pleased with the day and where how, how things were going and, and where I was. Um, and I just heard this audible voice uh, from God, Amy, you're teaching the wrong thing. And, and Erica, I went home and cried. I went home and cried. So it was not a... Um, it was not really a positive experience for me because it was just reinforcement at the time that I was practicing avoidance from the thing that God was asking mm -hmm. me to do and walking instead in what I wanted to do. So I heard it. God is very kind to me because um, I do better when I hear more clearly. So God speaks to me often, pretty audibly. And that was one of those moments. And my response to it um, and I own it now because it's part of my story. But honestly, I was so avoidant and I was angry about it. I just wanted what I wanted. And at the time, I was serving in a lot of different capacities, lay leader, youth ministry, doing a lot of things for the church. And I just wanted that to be enough. <laughs> and um, and God was saying, um, it, I don't think that God was rejecting it as not enough, 
just not who I am. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, So after you heard that call, after you kind of did the avoidance thing, which we all do, um, what what was your next step? You said you were a licensed local pastor. Was that kind of the next step for you? Um, it, it, I was a lay pastor. I was like, okay, I'll do that. You know, I mean, I was just agreeing to part of some of what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what did that require me to do? Uh, maybe visit some people, uh, lead, lead the youth, uh, preach sermons and things like that. So I was willing to say yes to some of those things. Um, but then it was, it, my, uh, this is just so funny. Um, so then at the time, there were some other people who were exploring calls to ministry, a man whose name I don't even remember anymore. Um, and then a common friend that you and I have uh, named Denise. And they both were exploring going to seminary at uh, Palmer, which was then Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so they were both heading out to, some kind of orientation event and neither of them had a ride. So I said I would drive them, but I'm not going to seminary. No matter what, I'm not going, I will drive you and that's it. Um, and so we, I went with them, I stayed with them through the day and then I actually was the only one who enrolled. That's so funny. So I start, <laughs> so I started then in a new a new uh, negotiation, like, okay, well, I'll go to seminary, but I'm not going to be ordained, you know? So at every level, it was like, all right, I'll, I'll take this piecemeal. And then I became a student pastor then. Uh, and it was in the process of maybe my first semester of school, I think that I went to, or I guess maybe it was after the first summer I went to licensing school um, and then got my license and then started you did to that do- while you were in seminary. Yeah, or maybe it was right before, but it was right around that time. I can't remember. It feels like a long time ago now, but um, it was just in that season of me being willing to say yes to one more thing mm-hmm. that I said yes to that as well. And then started really standing in places that were um, more priestly and sacramental and learning that. Um, and this is what I teach pastors that I mentor now that for me, then I had an understanding that my call was not about what I would do in life, but it was fundamentally about who I am as a person. Mm. And so, you know, learning how to stand in the truth of who I am has been uh, the result of that moment of realizing that my call to be uh, a pastor was more about understanding who I am uh, in the kingdom of God and and the body of Christ, not what I do. Mm. I like that. Um, so there are a lot of people in seminary who are local licensed pastors, which is something yes. I learned. I didn't know that. Um, so what would you like, would you suggest if you had like the perfect route, right? Would you be like local licensed pastor seminary? Or would you be like, mm, you should go to seminary and then do this or something else? In like a perfect world, everyone's different, obviously. Yeah, so that was my first, uh, (laughs) that's my first reaction. Everybody is so different. It's really hard to say, you know. Um, I I think the best route is to, uh, with the trusted mentor, learn how to listen uh, to God. 
I think that there are a lot of people, once we declare a call to ministry or we, we vocalize that, a lot of people that want to um, contribute to the, the process and tell us what we should do and what order, and oftentimes that is related to the order that they did or, or didn't do and thought they should. Um, and so I would say that the best route is to learn how to listen to God and, um, primarily, and, and it's great to have feedback from other people, but if God calls you to go to seminary first, go to seminary. And if God calls you to, uh, to get more than a toe in the water in the local church in that kind of a way, then do that. So I wouldn't say that there's an ideal route, except ideally we should all be listening to what God tells us and not what boards or committees or other um, pastors have told us, if that makes sense. I think they should absolutely help us discern what God is saying, um, but I don't think that we should allow anyone to speak for God in that. I like that answer. Um, so were you still teaching while you were going to seminary? Uh, no, um, maybe for one semester. Mm -hmm. So, uh, afterwards I really took this step back. Um, at the same time I was doing some uh, freelance copy editing for, uh, online publications and services. Um, and what's funny about that is, as I was debating it the whole way, they kept offering me jobs that I've never been offered an online job since I got ordained. Isn't that funny? But like right up until um, they, they kept asking me. So I did some freelance work during that because it was honestly financially very helpful. Um, but in order to embrace the call, I really left that job and started learning what it would mean for me to be a teacher of Bible um, or faith or Christian education. And that, that actually required me to enter into a season of pretty significant poverty um, because what I was doing was actually pretty lucrative. And um, people should be really aware that uh, working as a church leader is not <laughs> a financially lucrative opportunity. And if that's why we seek it, um, we are probably wrongly placed to begin with. So yeah, that was, I think that was um, the, the thing that I gave up first was teaching. The thing that I gave up last um, was living in church owned uh, property. I gave up and sold the house I lived in. Mm. So it was, um, there was a period of shedding, I guess, shedding the things that were mine and embracing the, the things that God was giving me in place of that. Um, so how was your seminary experience just like in general, like your classes, how do you, looking back on that period, how do you kind of feel about it? I love that period. I think it was um, for me a strong formative time. It was a strong time in the life and history of Palmer. Um, and so I was, uh, on campus in Wynwood, um, mm -hmm. and I was able to meet people who lived on campus, people who commuted. And so we had, uh, 
a lot of diversity uh, and that still exists at Palmer. It's, it's, it's something that I think is um, present at Palmer Seminary that's often absent at other seminaries. There was also for me uh, a real focus on practicality of ministry, um, not just what I could know in my head, but how what I knew would actually inform the practice of ministry. Um, and so I had some, some great um, mentors, even from students um, who were on, on site with me. So I remember that very fondly. I'm still in great communication with a lot of the folks that were there and graduated at the same time that I did. Um, and I still find them to be, a, and some of the professors too, who are no longer there. Um, and I, I still find them to be a great support um, I still do work in ministry with some of the professors that are there. So for example, um, in the earlier part of this year, uh, I wrote a video Bible study for Lent and uh, four Palmer um, professors uh, recorded and helped me to carry that Bible study. So for me, I remember it very fondly and I still live out the fondness of that by being in ministry with those folks even today. That's so cute. The Palmer professors are so great. From, yeah. It's from Mike's. I'm wearing a Palmer shirt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I still, I ask them to come and lead staff trainings for me. Uh, you know, I, I think it's really important that once we graduate, um, we don't view that season of our lives as a, a box to check and now we're finished, mm -hmm. but we should be um, considering ourselves as theologians and therefore lifelong learners. So in whatever way I can put myself in proximity to them, I try to do that. Yeah. It's just, and I feel like the, like, it's such a good place to facilitate conversation. And to, so to like to bring that facilitation to continue in your ministry is important and impressive thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like we, you know, sometimes we, I've seen people enter into seminary, um, like, you know, I've got it. <laughs> they have, they, they have this desire or feeling like, um, like they know it mm -hmm. and, uh, and they, and they've got it. And I just uh, would say that um, theology or uh, God is um, not something to get, <laughs> um, but uh, something to draw near to. And in that way, we should always be learning and we should never feel like we've got it. Um, and there's, and there's not a need for the dialogue you're describing. I think that there's always a need. Um, and in fact, if we read scripture, it is one long story of revelation, right? So we, I mean, we should never be thinking that we just don't need that anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so what was your ordination process like? Did you start it while you were at seminary? Did you wait till after? Yeah, I was in process uh, before I graduated. So I was commissioned before I graduated. Um, I think. <laughs> I have to think about this timeline. It's uh Yeah, I was in process before, um, so it wasn't a requirement for, for me at the time, and I think this has changed, uh, to have completed seminary, but only to have a certain number of credits, which I had. Mm. So I was um, already being interviewed by the Board of Ordained Ministry while I was still in 
seminary. Um, and the ordination process for me was honestly really difficult. Not the process itself, but I think in a lot of ways, because I was still debating my call to ordination, I probably sabotaged myself a little bit and my process um, by not doing things the way that I should. And I also had a lot of pressure coming from some of my mentors that were saying things I think they meant to be encouraging and affirming, like, um, you're going to have no problems, you know, and sometimes we put that kind of um, mantle on people and we shouldn't, right? Um, what I know now is that when we step forward and ask for this level of um, trust and authority, we are asking the church to give us the apostolic tradition of Jesus Christ. And that shouldn't be easy. It shouldn't be easy to get. And so we shouldn't feel afflicted that we have to go through certain things in order um, to have that kind of authority, in my opinion. But, but there, is, uh, there is a culture that um, I'll say, I do believe, of entitlement that people think they shouldn't have to do certain things. And I think I was really reared in that, if I'm honest. And it, it took me a while um, and a delay in process to get right about that. And uh, I'm really actually glad for that delay because I think had I stepped forward for ordination with that level of entitlement that was based on my accomplishments uh, or my intellect or my giftedness, I actually would be in a much different place now in ministry. Um, and if my ability to lead is based on my ability, um, I will max out of that pretty quickly. So, so for me, it was, it was difficult, but in the end, it was really refining, refining of my heart and my opinion um, about the, the process in general. And so at the end, uh, when I stepped forward for ordination interview and then uh, for actual ordination, um, I had learned that every part of the process was really an open door, an invitation by God uh, to, to walk through, to learn something about, about God, the church, or myself that I needed to learn. And had I just pushed through with that idea that this is going to be a breeze for me and they should just give this to me kind of thinking, um, yeah, I just don't think I would be as good a leader. Awesome. I feel like a lot of people complain about the ordination process. So that's a mm -hmm. fun little um, yeah. view. Yeah. I mean, if you just step back for a second and, and say that again, people complain about the ordination process. People complain that there are requirements on them to be the spiritual leader of God's people. I mean, it doesn't even make any sense when you say it. Of course, there should be requirements. Of course, there should be some kind of... Uh, gifts and fruit evidence. Of course, there should be a process of affirmation by the rest of the church. And so, you know, that's the thing that God needed to correct in my mind. And now as I mentor other people, hope to give that same um, correction too, because I just think it is, there's such hubris behind that statement. Mm -hmm. It sounds so simple when you say it like that, you're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Now that's, that's to me, the spirit of the individual. I recognize in saying that, that sometimes the ordination process has been um, unnecessarily difficult for people because of human contribution, uh, because of biases or prejudice. Um, and, and so I'm not, 
I'm not saying that those things are not true. Those things are true. And I've also worked um, on the board and I still work for the board um, to correct the unfairness of, or the unnecessary unfairness of process. Um, but I think that there are two parts to that. It can be difficult because of what we bring to it. And that's what I was addressing. And it can also be difficult because of what other people bring to it. Um, so the whole time you were going through the ordination process, did you ever think about going to a different denomination or was it always United Methodist? Um, I, maybe this is going to sound terrible, but, um, I don't think I was really thinking so much about it as United Methodist, to be honest. Um, my call is first and foremost, uh, to be a servant and a witness of Jesus Christ. And um, I was in the Methodist church. I felt called to walk towards ordination, and that's what I did. I, I don't think it was really until much later that I actually considered, um, should I or should I not be Methodist, to be honest. Um, I just heard God say, I want you to do this. And so I just took the steps to do it. Um, I probably would not be a good fit for some other denominations. And Maybe at some point in my life, I might not even be a good fit with uh, United Methodists. I don't know. Um, I wasn't thinking so much about that as much as I was thinking, what does it mean for me to step into a relationship with the church to allow them to affirm what God already said to me? For me, it wasn't denominational. It was purely about following Jesus. Yeah. Kind of like a very like, Paul theology like it's all one church I'm just following the Lord yeah so so I feel a sense of freedom um so you know people especially now with uh, strife and denomination like what will you do if this happens or that happens and honestly I really don't think about it that much um I just think about what are you asking me to do right now and if God asks me to do something else at a different point okay I I hope I will have the kind of discernment um, and flexibility to do that if that happens. Mm. I like that. I like that kind of thinking. Yeah. I mean, if, if we, if we have any familiarity with the Wesley covenant prayer, then we really are working towards, um, the statement, let me be employed, uh, for thee or laid aside for thee. And, um, yeah, so maybe right now I'm employed, maybe at some point I'll be laid aside or I'll be put somewhere else. And, uh, and for me, it's really just about, can I release control? Um, and, and, you know, can I surrender my life? So for me, it was, I was already in the Methodist church. God called me to that. Um, and I stayed and faithfully participated in the ordination uh, that God asked me to, to uh, stand in. So yeah, who knows what comes next? <laughs> it's a good question. We all would love to know, right? Mm -hmm. um, so now that you are serving in this pastoral role, what have you found to be the best parts and the hardest parts of doing this? I would say it's the same, same thing. And it is, uh, you know, walking with people. Mm. It's the best part is the hardest part. Um, I think practicing a ministry that is incarnational, like Jesus, um, requires us to be where the people are. And uh, my role has changed across time, and especially now where I do that less, 
Um, but I seek it out all the time for myself because fundamentally I think that's what God asked me to do. Um, not to, to necessarily um, stand over the people, um, but to be with them and to walk with them. And at certain points I'm walking ahead and asking them, follow me as I follow Christ, uh, like Paul said. But um, really, I think it's amazing to be invited into that tender space in people's lives and hearts and spiritual conversations with God. It's an incredibly vulnerable thing for people to invite us into that. And so every single time, um, it's a blessing to me. And it also allows me to be uh, the chief witness. That's a job title I prefer. I'm the chief witness mm-hmm. of, of the activity of God, right? So uh, it's a blessing to me to be um, in a situation where God is moving and working. And I can see the evidence of that. And I can be in those beautiful places uh, with people. And at the same time, um, working with people is the hardest work I think there is to do. And so sometimes um, it feels quite beautiful and sometimes uh, it it feels quite frustrating and it makes me angry. And um, yeah, so there's there's a wrestle about it, I think, because people are unpredictable um, and um, people are dealing with a lot of conflict, especially right now. And, and so sometimes there can be beauty and, um, uh, you know, darkness in the same day. <laughs> and even with the same people or in the same conversation, you know, so for me, it's, it's one in the same, what makes it the most beautiful also makes it the most difficult. What about, so on those days where it's difficult or where it's draining, how, like, what, do you do to kind of refill or handle that? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important for me um, to view myself first and foremost as a follower of Jesus, right? And uh, to be very intentional about my relationship uh, with Christ. And uh, I say to people, like, it's my goal, and I fail at this goal, Erica, often, but it's nonetheless, it's my goal uh, to be so close to Jesus um, and to be walking so closely behind him that if he stopped, I would bump into the back of him, right? Like I, I just, I want to be so close with him that on the days when I'm having a hard time dealing with the people of God, um, I can still feel refreshed uh, by him and um, encouraged and um aware that uh, nobody ever told me this was going to be easy work, but it was definitely described to me as holy work. And those moments are just as holy. So I think intentional relationship uh, with Christ is incredibly important. And, you know, I've met some pastors that, for example, only read the Bible because they're writing a sermon Um, They don't have much of a prayer life. They don't do a lot of um, what I would call biblical wonderment, (laughs) right? Um, Like I don't, I don't read the Bible. Biblical wonderment. (laughs) I think, yeah. So for me, biblical wonderment is, um, you know, like when I am studying or even when I'm preaching, I read it with expecting and hoping for a sense of wonderment, right? So even before I'm praying, I'm not asking the question, you know, what does this text say? I'm asking the question, uh, Lord, would you show me? 
what I haven't seen or what I've forgotten is so beautiful about this text. Um, so for me, it's always kind of like opening a present. Um, and so I do that when I'm preaching, but if I only do that when I'm preaching, then I'm only doing it as a job. And um, I think it's really important for us to be just as intentional about our faith and our spiritual journeys as we expect the people in our congregations to be. And we don't always. It's almost like that lead by example. Well, sure. I mean, the people that you're leading will only go as far and as deep and wide as you do. Mm. So if you are frustrated with a group of people because they're not doing something, um, then I would say maybe that's an invitation for you to be a little bit more intentional about doing that thing yourself so you can model it for other people. Mm -hmm. You know, like I've met a lot of pastors, for example, that say, you know, I'm so frustrated to be serving in a congregation um, that is always in the red financially. And I'll say, well, do you tithe? No. Okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, like, then, you know, then, then you're not, you're not modeling the thing you want people to do. Therefore, the truth is you won't really push them to accountability if you don't push yourself there. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to, well, I don't know if it's a pivot, but obviously you're a woman, you're a woman lead pastor. Um, how have you experienced, or do you think that your gender has affected or influenced your ministry in any way? I think it, it's interesting for me to be what I would call a second generation female pastor. So there was a generation that came before me in the Methodist church um, that's, or maybe two generations, maybe I'm third, uh, one that fought for uh, the right and one that paved the way. So in a lot of ways, I am the recipient of a lot of faithful and hard work from other women. And at the same time, because they had to fight, I think sometimes the reputation of females as fighting um, has, has been put onto me and I'm not that. <laughs> so I have to give a second example then if that makes sense, I'm in the, the generation that gives another example of what it looks like um, to, to be a female. Now, I, I don't have to fight for the right, but often I've been um, asked to fight for the placement or respect, um, which I refuse because uh, God called me to uh, ministry. So I don't need to defend what God did. God will defend that. Um, so I, I don't, I don't take those invitations, but I'm often asked to, um, and, and I think that even sometimes the way people, uh, think about me or talk to me is evidence of the fact that, um, there's still some question about whether or not, um, I'm capable or smart enough, um, or not overly emotional or, you know, like whatever some of these stereotypical assignments to females end up being, you know, um, oftentimes, um, I experience, uh, other male pastors or, uh, leaders, uh, mansplaining things to me. Um, if you, you know what I'm talking about when I say that word, um, you know, and it could be that, you know, I enter into a meeting and I say something and then 
of my male counterparts says exactly the same thing. And they say, wow, Eddie, that's a great idea. And luckily I served with someone who says, yeah, it is. And it was a great idea when Amy said it. Um, but that, that doesn't always happen, right? Um, and so I've been the recipient of a lot of that kind of conversation and people wanting to put things on me. Um, but God doesn't put that on me, so I don't need to accept it just because someone else does. So I don't spend a lot of time defining uh, or defending myself, but I also don't accept it when people ask me things that I perceive to be inappropriate, if that makes sense. So, um, so for example, someone recently said to me, uh, Amy, you're a, you're a good choice in the absence of a male leader. And I said, I'm a good choice in the presence of a male leader. Mm. And, and then I moved on. But uh, so I don't accept it, but I don't need to fight it everywhere I go, right? Um, when people have asked me things like, oh, uh, we'd love to see your legs more or things like that, um, I do address comments I believe are inappropriate. I don't let them stand. But this, at the heart of it, I am resolved with my own call to ministry as a female. And so I don't need to walk around with a defensive spirit about it. Mm. I think some people are still defending. And for me, it's been really freeing. God called me to ministry. So if you have a problem with that, that's a conversation between you and the Lord. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're like, I'm not the one that's going to have that conversation with you. Yeah, I mean, recently I was in a community gathering with pastors, um, all of them of a more conservative or more fundamental uh, type theology. And so, you know, when I show up on the call, um, they're really struggling you know? <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes I'll say, could we, could we just say what the elephant in the room is so we can all move on? Um, and, and then we can move on. And the truth is I don't need their approval. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it annoys me that the church is still in that place of what I perceive to be uh, misreading and misteaching scripture mm -hmm. for the benefit uh, of some and the exclusion of others, that does annoy me. Um, but it doesn't prevent me from being in conversations where good dialogue can happen. Mm -hmm. um, I get paid, I get paid less, I get, you know, all of that stuff. That is true uh, for women across the board still in every industry. So, you know, that that's something that is real. Um, I'm sure that, um, yeah, uh, my male counterparts don't have their Sunday outfits criticized uh, the same way that I do. Um, they probably don't hear things like, um, oh, when you stand up there for communion wearing that, I can barely pay attention to the elements and things like that that I hear. But, um, you know, it's still live. Uh, it's, it, there's still a need for dialogue. Um, but it doesn't prevent me at all from living out the call that God gave me. Do you think on the flip side, have you experienced any like positives of being um, a yes. woman in ministry? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I would say one of the positives for me is that I have often been. Um, invited to speak at different retreats or 
um, in different places where I've met um, Christians from all different theological and denominational backgrounds. And I have had the absolute blessing over and over of being the first female pastor that a lot of young ladies have ever met. And so it's been an incredible opportunity for me uh, to be the vocal mouthpiece um, that says, yes, God can call you to ministry and um, it is not impossible. And actually let's study that scripture and find out what it actually says. Um, and, and, and let's think through what God is saying to you instead of what pastor so-and-so um, is saying to you. And most recently, um, I met a young woman down in Virginia and I invited her to move to Pennsylvania to an area that would affirm her call to ministry. And she just finished her first interview with SPRC and is coming for our charge conference as a declared candidate for ministry. So, uh, you know, in that way, being an, an older generation for those who are coming after me enables me to do the very thing that other females did for me. Mm. I like that. It's so weird because like as someone who grew up in a church with Denise as my, you know, youth leader and a female pastor, like I like forget that people don't grow up in those, you know, well, I don't forget, but like I, I can't easily imagine, you know, right. meeting my first female pastor as an adult and how I would feel about that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool that you have that opportunity. Yeah. Um. So I want to ask if we have time. I want to add a like question where I want to ask, we were kind of talking about it before I started recording. What has uh, COVID been like for you and in your leadership and kind of in your church? Uh, it's It's been probably at once the hardest and most exciting time of ministry that I've experienced so far. It's the hardest um, because it comes with rapid fire change. Um, And so there is a lot of uh, undoing of traditionalism and expectation. And that just leaves people in a state of loss and grief. And sometimes in those moments, people misbehave. Um, So maybe you've seen some of that going on in the world. Um, And and so there's been a lot of division um, and and, um, people listening to the voices of leaders who are not spiritual or religious and who are then um, embracing them as their primary viewpoint. So it's kind of frustrating for me because I keep saying, you know, but Jesus is Lord. Um, He's your primary viewpoint, right? Okay. And so that's been really frustrating. And at the same time, it comes with a period of time where the church was disconnected, not meeting together necessarily in the same ways. Um, I think most churches were still meeting together, but it was just a different way of doing it. And it had, um, it it created some feelings of disconnection. And I think given the sense of uh, grief that people were having, the disagreements and the disconnection, it really challenged the church to be a good witness to the world. 
I think there was an incredible opportunity and mostly we didn't take it. But at the, uh, on the flip side, I think that COVID has been a beautiful undoing of some of the things that have shackled the church from being a good witness that need to come down, right? Some, some, uh, some Babel type towers that need to be torn down so that we can get really clear about why we are here and who we are supposed to be. Um, so I think there's an incredible opportunity for renewal and revival right now. And um, I'm excited to be looking in that direction as opposed to some leaders who are just hoping we can get back to normal. Um, I think that's an unfortunate perspective if people have that because normal is done. It is over and done. And if all we are seeking for the church is to get back to a place um, that I think for a lot of people could be characterized as sleepiness, <laughs> um, then that then we're probably not embracing as leaders the invitation that God is giving us for renewal. So I think there's uh, potentially a great spirit of revival ahead. So in this last year, we just completely um, rewrote and uh, listened uh, to God to do that rewriting, our mission, core values, and vision statement um, to be directed for where are we going in the next 50 years, not how do we just get back to what we've always done, but what are you saying to us in this season? What did you reveal to us about the strength of our community and the weakness of it? What did you, um, what did you reveal to us, God, about the foundation of our faith and all the things that we've piled up to complicate that, you know? And so for us, it's really like an unburdening right now. And uh, some folks are wildly excited about that, Erica. And some folks are like, but let, let's just go back to Egypt, you know? And, <laughs> and so, you know, I have to pastor both. Mm -hmm. I have to pastor both and, um, and, and realize that how I show up has got to continually be invitational to the things that God is is showing us collectively, not me, because I'm obviously not the only one with ears. Um, and so other people can hear and should hear. And I do believe in community discernment. So how do we bring as many people along without letting those that refuse to come along stop our momentum? Mm -hmm. Right? So uh, that's what COVID has been like for me <laughs> um, at having, uh, I told you that uh, I'm following, I'm an intentional successor to a man who su led successful ministry at Hopewell for 21 years. And so for the, for the first year, 2018 to 2019, I was just stepping in and learning um, and in effect, just carrying his legacy. But from the end part of 2019 until now, um, I am standing as myself because everything that we are doing now, he never did. He didn't have to. Mm -hmm. Well, in some ways he even avoided, right? And so what it looks like to be leading now means that I've transitioned out of a legacy mindset from one person into uh, leading as completely and fully as myself, mm. if that makes sense. And I think that's why it's more exciting to me than the first, <laughs> than the first year and a half, because 
um, none of us can ever, though we may often try, um, be the imitation of anyone other than Jesus. Mm. Um, that's a lot of hard work. So yes. So I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wake up tired. Um, but you know, some days uh, I'm just physically tired. Some days I'm soul tired. And I have to take the my own advice that I gave you about renewal and relationship with God. And there are a lot of great people around me that say, Amy, you believe this today, get out of here and go do this, you know? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's been a really great reminder for me is to realize that as a pastoral leader, uh, the success or the failure of the church does not alone rest on my shoulders. Hallelujah. What freedom. Um, <laughs> you know, so be um, very stressful as a kid. <laughs> But, but sometimes we behave as though that's true, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so it's just a, a wonderful invitation uh, for me to resist the, the, um, the temptation to, to view myself or any parts of my ministry um, in, in place of the Lordship of Jesus. Um, I, do what he I do what he does and I do what he asks me to do. Um, and if it's ever not enough, then, then please, Lord, send help. <laughs> I like that. That's sometimes hard to pray. Like, just send help. Like, I can't do it. Send help. Yeah. No, well, I can't be everything. I can only be authentically me. Mm. Um, and so I, I need to get over this idea that I have to be able to know everything and do everything. And sometimes it's my job. Well, all, always it's my job to empower others to do the work um, of the kingdom of God. And so that means that sometimes I need to step away and not be the star, right? Um, it's right. Jesus is the star and it's my job to make space for other people to know and serve him. Um, and if I'm trying to do everything by myself or I'm trying to fill some internal void for affirmation by doing everything myself, then I'm actually robbing the church um, of its opportunity for faithful discipleship. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I'll ask one final question. Do you have, uh, what's the best piece of advice that either you've been given or that you would give to uh, either a seminarian or someone thinking about going into pastoral ministry? Mm. I would say what I said before is the best advice, um, which is develop the spiritual discipline of listening to God. Um, we spend a lot of time reading, praying, all of these activities, you know, um, and, and I think when we learn how to hear and respond to the voice of God, then uh, we learn how to be led ourselves um, you can't, you can't be a leader and not be led. Um, and so we learn how to be led, uh, by God, um, and by the spirit of Christ. And I think then, um, we can show up much differently when we are more concerned about what God is saying to us and what God is asking of us than if we place that power in the hands of other people. So, I would say that when I learned how to listen to God, um, 
my whole strategy for leadership and, and the need for human affirmation changed. And then I was really working for the Lord and not working for the people and for their accolades. Mm. 